6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 1 through 4. We're going to undertake a study of the epistle by Jude. I have wanted to do this book for a long time, frankly, out of mischief. There is so much spooky, weird stuff in the... How in 25 verses you could cram so many mysteries and enigmas and stuff fascinates me. But the real reason I'm taking it on, suggesting we dig into this, is because as I really understand the epistle, it's written for us today. It's a very, very unusual book with a very, very timely message. The Acts of the Apostles was the beginning of the church. Jude is the Acts of the Apostates. It's written for the end times, for the end of the church era. And uh, so it's an interesting book in terms of its allusions. We're going to go to the dawn of human history. We're going to be going all the way through Eden, through the uh, ancient early stages of Israel's history. We'll be talking about princes and prophets of saints and sinners. We'll be talking everything from the eternal fires to the everlasting darkness in strange ways that you probably have not seen in the Scripture unless you're a very diligent student, about past judgments of strange beings, and future glory. We're going to travel in the unseen world and see and deal with angels that apparently got involved in some bizarre happenings. We're going to, that's going to take us, of course, into Genesis 6. It's going to take us into, well, some really creepy areas. This is really a Halloween series, I suspect. <laughs> um, we're also going to study a dispute between the archangel, Michael, and the former cherub that covereth, a guy by the name of Satan, and how they disputed of all bizarre things over the body of Moses. Jude flips that off like y'all knew what he was talking about. And uh, uh, I used to believe that you couldn't really deal with the book of Jude without getting into the Apocrypha. There's a book called the Book of Enoch, in fact there's several of them, and there's the Assumption of Moses and a bunch of strange books. And we'll deal with that when we get there. So the, the study of Jude is going to take us into some strange traffic. Now, the other irony of the book of Jude, fascinating as it is, it's neglected. You know, how many of you have been to a Bible study in the book of Jude? You know, I've been a Christian for, you have, okay, good. I, I've been a Christian for a long time and have not been to a, you know, a study per se of focusing on the book of Jude. It's also interesting as I study the commentaries. You can get 25-volume sets of commentaries that have maybe three pages on the book of Jude. You can go through some of the most venerated commentaries, and it's amazing how little they have on this very, very unusual book. So it's uh, all, all that having been said, it's a book of some substantial neglect. Now, you know my style. We generally go at a chapter a, a week, and uh, that would, you know, so... 
Uh, I have threatened to yeah, I've threatened to make this a, a verse a week. It won't be quite that bad, but we're not going to finish. I give you first so you can relax. We're not going to complete the book of Jude tonight. It's a one-chapter book of 25 verses. Uh, we're not, we'll do more than uh, a verse a night, but probably not a lot better. Um, okay. The epistle of Jude. First of all, why take the book of Jude? Well, I've mentioned a couple of things. The beginning of the church you might call the Acts of the Apostles. A subtitle to Jude might be the Acts of the Apostates. We're going to talk about what apostasy is, how it happened in the past, and how we can anticipate prophetically the great apostasy before the Lord, just before the Lord comes. Um, in fact, uh, the Lord poses the rhetorical question, when the Lord returns, will he find faith on the earth? We're talking about that. We're also, one reason the book seemed particularly timely, there is a specific heresy that's emerging throughout the body of Christ. It's happening in the charismatic movement. It's happening in the fundamentalist movement. It's happening in the apologetic level and at the grassroots level. It is involving some of the most distinguished leadership in America and secretly. Many of the leaders in the so-called Christian church in America secretly espouse a doctrine that is uh, not only a heresy, but may be laying the very philosophical foundation for the Great Tribulation. And we'll talk about that. The timeliness of this and what's going on is one of the motives uh, in t undertaking this book at this time. We're going to study a book that has a message for you and I personally, and a book that has a message, I believe, to the believing body, uniquely to the era that we live in right now. And so those are, the, those are assertions to challenge you. Uh, those of you that are taking notes, I will, of course, indulge what probably is becoming my trademark. In the upper right-hand corner of your notepad, put Acts 17.11. It'll never be more important than in this series. <laughs> Acts 17.11 is essentially where Luke tells you not to believe anything Chuck Mister tells you, but to search the Scriptures daily to prove whether those things are so. Jude, by the way, is the only book that's devoted virtually entirely to the subject of apostasy. And in Luke 18.8, Jesus says, Shall the Son of Man find faith on the earth? A very interesting rhetorical question. We might just pause here and take a look a little. We talk about apostasy. It's apostasy. It's a word that, that gets kicked around a bit. Let's look at a couple, not a lot, but a few of these critical passages. Turn with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's very hard to hit some of these references without spending an evening on them because there's so much background that's so visible. But the particular verse I would like to focus on, there's chapter 2 Thessalonians 2 is a classic chapter among students of prophecy because it's full of all kinds of insights, some of them quite technical. I'll try to sidestep those for tonight and just focus on verse 3 where Paul tells the Thessalonians, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away, an apostasy, first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And then he goes on and talks about the Antichrist in a lot of ways. And I'm using the term Antichrist in a colloquial sense. Your sophisticated students know that that's not one of his titles. He has 50 titles. That ain't one of them, but it's the one everybody uses, so you know who I mean. 
But the main point is an apostasy precedes the end times. It, it is associated, it sets the stage for this leader to emerge. So 2 Thessalonians 2 is a key passage. I won't derail our study in Jude to get into that more tonight, but for those of you that are diligent, uh, you can dig out your notes and background in 2 Thessalonians 2 and the, both the preceding and, and subsequent events that surround the lie and the man of sin and so on. Let's take some more practical uh, focus on this. Turn to 1 Timothy 4. Just turn to your right a little bit, a few, few pages, and you come to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing a practical letter to his buddy, equipping him for the ministry. And 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And from here you can go on into a whole study of false doctrine. False doctrine is not just superstition. It is not just deviations from the truth. It's not just any of a lot of things. It's engineered deception by the host of darkness himself. Doctrines of demons. That phrase comes out of 1 Timothy 4.1. You can go on from there. I won't take that. I'm just trying to give you just some high points to get a flavor of this. Turn to 2 Timothy 4. Verse 3 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. And what's really fascinating is when someone rejects the truth of Jesus Christ, the stuff they turn to, the most bizarre things. But again, I, I don't want to derail here. The unwillingness to endure sound doctrine is another characteristic of what this, this whole area of apostasy. And um, let's, uh, let's also turn, uh, and I just in a sort of highlight, quick survey, some of this is really by way of review, 2 Peter 2. Let's first of all take 2 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 1. The Apostle Peter says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who secretly shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, bringing among themselves swift destruction. Bringing in damnable heresies. Let's talk about some of those that go on. Chapter 3 of that same letter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's pick verses 3 and 4. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, by the way, this may seem strange, because on the one hand, the characteristic of these false teachers is that they're going to cast doubt about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Part of the viewpoint or doctrine of this, they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? It's a skeptical rhetorical question about denying the second coming. Their argument here doesn't seem linked at first blush at all. He says, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What's not obvious by the structure of that sentence is there's a link here in a doubt of creation 
with the second coming. You wonder, what has the second coming got to do with evolution and so forth? And it's this whole idea, this, this uh, disparagement of the idea that there is a God who on the one hand created the universe in the first place and secondly intervenes in its history by returning and involving himself. And one of the fascinating links, it's not obvious but it's worth your consideration, is to recognize that a faith in the creation is linked to a faith in prophecy. And uh, it has to do with uniformitarianism. It has to do with the recognition that there is a creator who has a purpose and an involvement in your life as, as well as mine. And that's the whole idea behind God's purpose in the first place and his willingness and interest and involvement in interfering in man's history, in, in, in intervening, and in fact intruding none other than his son to on a very special mission and one in which he will again intrude upon history and by returning and so forth. So the whole idea of second coming is related to the Genesis 1 is related to Revelation 22. It's all linked. Okay, so Jude, by the way, we just seen Peter here. We're going to discover the epistle of Jude has a close relationship to, to the Peter's last letters in several ways, and we'll come to that when the time comes. But it's probably, most of all, parallel to James. The Epistle of James, the Epistle of Jude have some very bizarre parallels. James essentially deals with good works as evidence of faith. James is often misunderstood. James emphasizes works, not a faith by works, but an evidence of your faith by your works. So James emphasizes good works as an evidence of saving faith. Jude structures this letter to point out that evil works are evidence of apostasy or a false faith. And so there's an interesting parallel. One reason it's also parallel, which may have nothing to do with anything, is that they were brothers. So we'll get to that in a minute, too. Jude is in many respects the vestibule of the book of Revelation. Jude comes just before the Revelation. And it's, it turns out, for lots of reasons structurally, that's very handy. It sets the stage, if you will, for the book of Revelation. Jude will be fun for us as we get into it is because it gives us an excuse to peek in the dark corners of the book of the Old Testament. Jude makes all kinds of offhand references to things he assumes you know, and uh, that causes us to scramble for our concordances and what have you to find out what on earth he's talking about. So that'll be kind of fun. One other thing before we get into the, the book itself, I, I'd like to give you an outline. And this is one of those times that I almost wish I was using a view graph, but I got away from that years ago because it forces me to put more on the tape. So I want to give you an outline. I'm going to try to describe how to do this. Is I, I'm going to give you about six indentations and then come back out. So you'll go, in other words, we're going to go, um, we're going to have 11 lines. There's 11 parts to the book of Jude, but structurally it's quite interesting. If you can make 11 lines, the first and the last line is the assurance for the Christian. It opens with assurance for the Christian, and it closes with assurance for the Christian. That's no surprise. He's going to talk about apostasy, but he's going to talk to you people, not the apostates. So one thing he wants to do is give you assurance, both up front and at the end. The second section from the beginning is the same idea as the second from the end, the believer and the faith. So your second and tenth, in other words, the second one from the front and the second one from the back, the title would be the believer and the, and the faith. The third from the front end is 
apostates described. And the third from the back end is apostates described. The fourth subject, so to speak, and I'll, I'll go over this again and give you the verses, is apostasy in Old Testament history. The fourth from the end is apostasy in Old Testament prophecy. The fifth section or part is apostasy in, in the supernatural realm. And the fifth from the end is apostasy in the natural realm. And the middle section is a trio, a very select trio of apostates that he focuses on. So to go once again, we're going to go six down and then back in. The first one is assurance for the Christian. That's verses one and two. The second section is the believer and the faith, verse 3. The third part is apostates described, verse 4. The next section is apostasy in Old Testament history, and that's verses 5 through 8. That'll be quite an interesting survey. The next section is apostasy in the supernatural realm, verses 9 and 10. That's the spooky stuff. Then we have verse 11, which is sort of the fulcrum for the whole structure here, an ancient trio of apostates. The next section, apostasy in the natural realm, verses 12 and 13. Apostasy in Old Testament prophecy, verses 14 through 16. Apostates described, verses 17 through 19. The believer and the faith, verses 20 through 23. And assurance for the Christian, verses 24 and 25. What fascinates me about that, there's lots of outlines. You can take any book and find, you know, seven authors will have seven different outlines. But this one kind of intrigues me because it shows that there's an underlying structure to this book that's uh, really quite provocative. Okay, so, so much for that. That gives us our <clears throat> 25-verse thing. So, at this point, we're ready to jump in the book. So usually I spend the first uh, 80 minutes of the first 90 minutes in ancient history and diagrams, old kings and stuff. We never get in the verse. We have to, we get, this is pretty good. And just in hardly any time at all, we're in verse 1. The first word is the word Jude. Okay? Did you notice that? Why are you laughing, right? The name Jude in the Greek is Judas. Here's a book about apostasy whose name happens to be synonymous with Traitor. It's interesting, you know, we call our kids Samuel, Paul, Peter, John, Matthew. How many of you named your kids Judas? That's a little... You know, Jude and Judas was a very common name in Christ's day. There's four or five of them in the New Testament alone. And yet, because of one by the name of Iscariot, the name has gotten sort of tainted. It's not a popular thing. You know, you name your dog, you name your kids, Peter, Paul, and so whatever. You can name your dog, Nero, Caesar. You don't even name your dog, Judas, I don't think. <laughs> the only pet that I know that was named is Judas. I happen to have the opportunity in my consulting days to uh, survey the largest meatpacking operation in South Dakota, John Morell Meat Company. I was fascinated to discover there really is a goat when they get ready to, you know, they have these cattle to go up the ramp into the slaughterhouse. There's a goat that leads them up. The goat turns right, they turn left. It's a Judas goat. And you hear that expression. There really is, in, the, in today's modern culture, part of the operation of a slaughter operation, meatpacking plant, is a Judas goat. 
But other than that, I don't think we use the name normally, except as an idiom for being a traitor. So it's interesting that the book of Jude, I'm not trying to disparage the particular writer, don't misunderstand me, but I think the Holy Spirit does in fact, more often than not, indulge in puns. Not, not for humor, but for a message. When we, in the Old Testament, read the, read the book of Joshua, the name Yehoshua is, a, is the Hebrew for Jesus. And when you realize that there's a name in the Old, a book of the Old Testament whose name, in effect, is a, a namesake of our Lord, it causes our attention, and all kinds of things surface from that as we look at that sort of thing, and so on. So the fact that here's a book about apostasy, who ha which happens to carry the name Judas, is uh, a pro provocative. Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, most of you as students of Scripture understand that what a doulos is in the Greek, a bond slave, a slave for life. Now, incidentally, we're going to discover shortly, well, I'll get ahead. He, we, we believe that Jude here was the brother of James, both of which were the brothers of the Lord. I'll come to that in a minute. We'll get into that. But it's interesting. He does not use that link as an identity. He's not that presumptuous. If we understand it right, the four brothers of Jesus Christ didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. This is, we don't believe this is the Jew that's listed in the apostles. Different Jude. Different James. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. James and Jude were brothers. They were linked to the family of Jesus Christ. Some feel they were actual brothers. Some feel they may have been stepbrothers from a form of marriage. There's all kinds of, I won't get into that here because the language isn't that clear, but we do, he links himself obviously then thus to, uh, to James. It's interesting that Jude says, Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, and this book sits just before the book of Revelation. And to get what I'm after, turn the page and let's refresh our memories as to the first verse of the book of Revelation. First of all, let me reemphasize it's a singular word. It's amazing how many ministers I even hear on the radio speak of revelations, plural. It's not, it's a singular. It's not a collection of revelations. It's a singular revelation. The first sentence, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's it, the singular revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, unto whom? To Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation seems a little strange in its style. It's because it's the Father talking to the Son. But, which God gave unto him, for what purpose? To show unto his doulos, his servants, things which must shortly come to pass. So, the Revelation is written to whom? To the Judes. To you and I, to the extent that we're in his shoes. Jude, the servant, the doulos, the bond slave of Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about, is a very, very final climactic appendage to the Scripture to inform the servants. Okay. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. Now, this is a great departure to go from here. We go into 17 hours of background on all the four different Jameses we find in the Gospels. So I'll spare you all that. The brother of James, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem, he remember that he shows up prominently when they have this dispute that uh, that gets resolved. And you can chase that down on your leisure. You know, he's also the author of the epistle of James, also in Scripture. And it's, it, there are some interesting structural parallels between James and Jude. And he is recorded in Galatians chapter one, verse nineteen, as the Lord's brother. Now, I, don't, uh, I personally think he was the Lord's brother, but I should share with you candidly, there are some scholars who believe that the term 
is broader than a direct brother as you and I would use it. And so there's that, that it's, it's not tightly conclusive, but for lots of reasons, not the least of which uh, you might want to take a look at uh, either Matthew 13.55 or Mark 6.3. They're pretty much similar. Let's take Mark 6.3 because it does include one other interesting little thing. Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, uh, verse 2, it says, For where hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that giveth such mighty works as are wrought by his hand? This is the crowd sort of responding here. And verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judas and of Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. That was, you know, that, that, that was the response. Now, I won't get into Mark and the whole situation, but in, incidental to this passage, it lists four brothers and some sisters. And uh, some people, especially of Catholic background, have a real hang-up with that. Well, I'm not here to beat it to death, and there are some, uh, you know, uh, competent scholars who, and Jesus goes on and says, you know, is, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and among his own kindred. In any case, though, we believe that, well, first of all, this James was the, J, the head of the church in Jerusalem, and there was a brother by the name of Judas, or Jude. This Jude is the writer who identifies himself as the brother of James, and to the readership, who is James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, the Lord's brother? Okay, so that's why I don't think there's a big mystery. We don't need to beat it to death. Uh, we'll just keep moving on. And if you study John chapter 7, verse 5, you'll come to the conclusion that the brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection. And so it was after the resurrection of Jesus Christ that they seemed to grasp who he really was. And, uh, and certainly... Um, James and Jude, at least, became active for his gospel. And James, very distinguished, and Jude, obviously, the author of this epistle, and so on. So it's interesting that neither one of them were numbered among the twelve. That James, James the last, all of those are different cast of characters, to the best of our understanding. Next, we're going to check our equipment before we plunge into the book. Let's finish verse 1. It says, uh, the way in the King James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.